I don't know if the president understands about prayer or people who do pray, uh, but we do pray uh, for the United States of America. I pray for him, I pray for President Bush, still President Obama, because it's a heavy responsibility. And uh, I pray hard for him because he's so off the track. At some point, uh, there were instructions or uh, uh, dictates or requests uh, from uh, up above. Uh, and as a result, uh, what was supposed to be turned over to us was withheld from us. My faith is at the heart of who I am. I take an oath before God as enormously consequential. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Don't cry out loud. Just keep it inside. Learn how to hide your feelings. Oh no, I had planned to definitely not sing today because I've been studying the radio style of one Rush Limbaugh to whom we all send prayers. And he's very antic and sings and makes a lot of noises. And I was like, no. I got to be NPR. I'm Sylvia Pajoli. I'm CNN. I'm Anderson Cooper. Because that singing stuff is for clowns and carnies and Trumpites. And damn it, this whole world has turned me into a clown and a carny. Goodbye, civilization, with your beautiful ideals. I, I loved you. Anyway, I'm not crying out loud because I have to admit I'm feeling some mounting, let's call it despair today. At several turns of events, including the nutty Iowa caucus, Democrats will come through, but that was admittedly embarrassing, and, of course, the acquittal of the impeached, an infinitely, incontrovertibly guilty president. (sighs) We knew he would be acquitted, and he was. We knew he was going to crow about it, and he did. And we knew it would come down to the election this year in which he and the Republicans are still meddling and would come down to whatever's left of our once cherished democracy. But it's still hard. The only three forces that might intervene now are um, and that we can hope for nuclear disaster, environmental disaster or like a strategically placed cardiac arrest in the right chest cavity. But what kind of monster would I be if I talked about nukes and cardiac arrest? I told you I'm becoming them. My guest today, though, has very much not become them, so I'm going to get it together. He's committed to going high when they go low, and he's stuck to his guns on this one. He's Joel Stein, the longtime writer for Time magazine, reporter, humorist, essayist. He wears a cravat. He speaks in dulcet tones. And suitably, his latest book is called In Defense of Elitism. Now, I'm extremely honored to be able to talk to Joel today. And between us, I'm going to try to call him Joel and pretend to be casual with him because he considers me a member of the elite instead of a try-hard grind whose clothes from Uniqlo are all made of petroleum. So I'm just going to go with it, with with Joel. I'm going to keep it together, keep it together, K-I-T, keep it together. Joel Stein, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you for having me on. Isn't this weird that that's how you have to start these things? And then you, at the, somewhere in the middle, it becomes like a date and you have to say, or the end, you've such a good time and you really like each other. 
<laughs> so I, I'm, I'm confused. Yes. Yeah. Your book is called In Defense of Elitism. I want to start with two stories about elitism, and then I want you to tell me 400 stories about elitism. But I want you to tell me what you make of my two stories. Mm-hmm. They sort of will bear on whether I think I'm an elitist. I feel like Fraser Crane. I like this. Okay. So the first one, they were examples of two people confessing to snobbery, basically. The one was this guy, Mike, who I was just getting to know a little bit, friend of a friend. And he was explaining to me, this is what he said. So I grew up in Gravesend and my father made weights for fishing boats. So as you can imagine, I was a little snobbish. Okay, that's the first one. Okay, got it. And there was very much like, I'm a little snobbish, enough said, right? Mm -hmm. Like weights for fishing boats, his grandfather, say no more. Okay. Got it. The second one was a kind of aerobic, like proper Pilates mother, grandmother with beautiful features, maybe help aided by a surgeon. And she said, well, I'm from Sneedon's Landing. So you can imagine what that led me to do. Okay, two places I don't know very well are Gravesend and Sneedon's Landing. (laughs) And yet, people from those places told me about them as though they were hallmarks of something important. And at that moment, I realized that everyone both thinks that they're elite and worries that the elite don't like them. What do you think about that? Wow, I love these names. There was Sneedon's Landing and... and Yes, Gravesend. They sound very much... I I have... I'm going to confess, I haven't read the Harry Potter books, but it feels like those are places <laughs> from the... You're right. Both of them do. That's absolutely true. Sneedon's Landing has a little Dr. Seuss factor <laughs> that I like. Okay. In my book, one of the things I get into is these two competing elitisms that I think is a big part of what we're living through around the world right now, which came to me as I was writing the book because President Trump, who I need to bring up right away because it's Trump cast, yes. gave a speech probably two years ago now in Minnesota after railing against the elite throughout his entire campaign, as Mm -hmm. had so many Republicans before and even after 2016. uh, Suddenly, in the middle of the speech, kind of ad-libbing as he does, he said, wait a second, why are they the elite? Like, we're the elite. Mm. We have more money. We have bigger apartments. We have nicer boats. We should be the elite. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, Mm. And then he started calling his himself and his followers the super elite because he only has so many mm. words at his command. But instead, yeah. I, I decided that there was this essay written in 1900 by Vilfredo okay. Pareto, who was that, okay. that economist who came up with the 80-20 principle, this fascist guy that Mussolini loved. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so he's the first guy who uses the word elite the way that I think I'm about to use it. And he wrote this book called The Circulation of the Elites. It was an essay in 1900. Okay. And mm-hmm. he, it's a little bit of a rehashing of Nietzsche, but he says that you think that the populace kind of is revolting or whatever, but it's really a fight between these two elites. It's very animal farm. Mm. There's always going to be some elite mm. in charge. And the two groups, uh, he had better words for it, but the ones I use in my book are the intellectual elite. We don't really want a yacht. We want to we want to give a TED talk. Like that's our goal. We're not as much about power and money. We have different kind of gauges of what we think, how the world should work and what we want. And then there's what mm-hmm. I call the boat elite. 
because of what Trump said. Let's go back to the intellectual elite. They just think that you should have read your Italian philosophers and that, you know, a little Nietzsche never hurt nobody. No, well, it has hurt some people. (laughs) Like a little Nietzsche hurt Hitler, probably. Maybe you're right. So these two different ones, right? And we talk about this Needham's Landing guy. Needham's Landing. Was that the guy who made the weights? His dad made the grandfather? No, the Gravesend guy. The Gravesend guy, Mike. His grandfather made weights for fishing boats. I assume he was worried about being thought of the elite in the Bernie Sanders way of being in the, a millionaire, a billionaire and, and having heirs because of his money. And I assume the other woman. Oh, right. So that's a different. No, oh, I no? think he just had traction with this Italian family that did this kind of old craft work and also oh. had kind of dominated that business in Brooklyn. I think he was legitimately like concerned that his snobbery had led him to act out in various ways and that thought he was better than everyone else. And he was now trying to get some humility. Wow. So he was like the equivalent of like on the island of Murano outside of Venice and good at, is it glasswork or lacework? I forget the two confused. Yes, so exactly. He, oh, that's an old version of kind of the intellectual elite, right? That's probably the one Pareto was thinking I of. I think that's right. Exactly. Or the one thing that, so my mother grew up in Appalachia in a coal mining town, but her dad was wasn't in mining. He kind of had a utility, right? So she really worried that the coal miner's daughters were snubbing her um, because she went to Girl Scout camp and they went to a regular camp. You know what I mean? Like this kind of very small differences, seemingly small differences, not available to the naked eye, but that make you feel like you're left out of the more fun stuff that the workaday crowd gets to do. What's regular camp, if not Girl Scout camp? Is it in the mines yeah, itself? Yeah, like right. What? How much lower can you go? I don't know. Than Girl Scout camp? You yeah. mean, I don't remember. I think they just like went to daycare. They Maybe they played in the coal dust. I don't know. Wow. But it was definitely something that gave them integrity and clickishness. But anyway, your thought was that... That guy with the craftsmanship and the fishing weights, weights for fishing boats, might want to have seemed more blue collar, but in fact, his family had money. All I was amazed at is that he used the word snobbish Mm -hmm. and that he, you know, this very arcane thing that wouldn't set him apart anywhere. And he would have looked like an average Joe at, you know, maybe the places that, you know, the Beverly Hills Hotel, he'd barely be allowed in, but that he considered himself the cock of the walk somewhere else. And that was interesting to me. Yeah. So I really found that looking at what's going on in the world right now, as far as this populist revolution, which freak, I got really freaked out, um, as many of us did the night that Trump won the election. Yeah. I was going to this party on my block. There's this uh, liberal radio host named Stephanie Miller, and she was throwing a party. And I was there and I brought a bottle of like sparkling Trump wine from Virginia that someone had- Yes, I saw this. Yeah. And it was aged, right? Because you say, I, I bought a 2012 bottle of Blanc de Blanc or something. Yeah. And then I realized it's 2016 and you're you're listening for election results. And I went back to see if you had the dates right and then realized you have a four-year-old bottle of Trump Blanc de Blanc. Well, as was- an elitist snob, I actually have a wine cellar. So that didn't even. Oh, yes. Yes. Right. That didn't even seem old. But it wasn't being aged. It was just I was waiting for a a moment where it would be funny, Mm. funny to give someone that. It's terrific. And also what fun we were all having that night because we were so much sure the fix was in for our candidate. That was going to be great. Uh, First woman president. Remember, I was watching returns on my computer, maybe because I'm not good at parties or I was nervous. And I saw results coming in that didn't match what I had seen earlier in the day from some 
exit polls that someone had given me, uh, I got really freaked out. And as I'd been freaked out by Brexit, I'd been freaked out by some of the stuff that was happening in Europe. And I really started to look at it through this, this lens of, oh, there's a, there's a populist movement against the elites that we've seen before and is happening everywhere. And I need to understand it. I don't know how to fix it, yeah. but I'd like to even understand it. So I found the county with the highest percentage of Trump voters. And I went down there for a week and hung out with people. That became this book. Yeah, the first third of the book. And then I went to go find other people to explain it to me in a different way. So tell me about some of the people you met. I know from reading the book, you're so personable and funny and also capable. I'm just going to flag the wine again, the Trump Blanc de Blanc of irony, which is a nice skill for people, whatever their relation to elitism, you know, like a little bit of amusement with ideas. You don't hold anything too strongly. So you were, what I mean is you were willing to participate as a good sport in many dinners and conversations around red anti-elite neighborhoods. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was curious even more than being a good sport or having a sense of irony. Like I was really just confused. And when, when I get scared, I tend to want to make myself feel better with information. Like even right after the election, I remember calling like the one Republican I kind of knew pretty well, or maybe yeah. two. And then my dad, who is a is a Democrat, but has a kind of a long view of history and is, you know, not that is a conservative kind of Democrat. Just because I felt yeah. like those people would make me feel better and explain things to me because my friends were not making me feel better at all. And they didn't, right? No, they did to some extent. And the people in Miami, Texas, which is the town I went to. In fact, as yeah. I was driving here, I still talk to people there. And I returned a call from someone who calls me a lot from there. Hmm. So I just talked to someone about the impeachment and what he thought of it. And because you're hot off it, what was that conversation like? This is a Trump voter mm -hmm. who just learned what to us is crushing news about Trump's acquittal and what to him is no doubt a moment of euphoria. No, that's the thing. Like, oh. we live in the in a pretty, pretty far, far, far left world where these things are huge to us. He watches Fox News every night. He's not uninformed, un, you know, apolitical. He cares. But his view is a very Tony Soprano's view of the world, which is like hmm. this thing Trump did. Politicians, you know, they're, they're looking out for themselves. I probably would be like that mm -hmm. if I were a politician, which is why I would never do it. But every other president's done basically this thing. The, the left has gone mad and yep. the world's gone mad. And if we get a Democrat as president, the Republicans are going to impeach him. Like this is, it's gotten out of control and the Democrats were out of control. I just finished a piece on Rush Limbaugh that's not up yet, but he also complains, decries the elite and, and also oh, yeah. lives in Palm Beach in a $70 million estate. But that's those are different elites. They're elites, right. Or at least they're rich as hell. I mean, the world you were alluding to earlier about intellectual elites, like just, you know, it seems like in the recent past, they would have been considered just gauche beyond belief. But they definitely have more money than I do. I got to hand it to them. They do. But I think there's a mistake that like people like you and I make or that Bernie Sanders makes or that Jeremy Corbyn makes where they don't realize there are two different kinds of elites that are that are mm -hmm. fighting and they just don't understand yeah. how people can support Trump when he's a billionaire and he's an elite. Yeah. And how can he rail against elite? It's because he's railing against the kind of like intellectual elites who control everything with their sneaky laws and work against the hardworking Americans, where the people mm -hmm. who care about power and money, even if they don't have any power and money, respect those who are able to get it. 
and that's who they want to yes. be. And they're not they're not lording it over them by quoting Nietzsche. They're just like doing what they would do if they had money, which is like getting a hot wife with a boob job and and painting everything in gold and like eating McDonald's with under like, you know, a silver dome. That's exactly how most people would spend their money and they don't find that to be elite. Tell me about one or two of these populists, anti-elitists, Trumpites, uh, maybe the guy that called you, who you kind of liked and got into and thought was all right. Oh, I liked the people in Miami, Texas. I liked a lot. I liked Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy who hung out with. I liked Tucker uh, Carlson. Yeah. Like, these are nice people who you enjoy spending uh, time with. That doesn't mean that their idea of how the world should work isn't dangerous. So Scott Adams gave his book, Think Bigly, not a great review. And so I probably can't think clearly about Scott Adams. So tell me what you liked about him. <laughs> oh, just as a person, I, you, would, you would enjoy him. He's very sweet. He's very soft-spoken. He's a really good listener. He's a great host. Uh, you, you would like him on a personal level. I don't think you'd like his worldview at all, but I, I think you might enjoy him. He's funny. Yeah. He does like power games. I mean, he's he, he like he fits that description. He's a trained hypnotist. I know. And he claims that he's made many women, uh, maybe many isn't fair. He's made a number of women orgasm uh, without touching them through hypnosis. Oh, that is charming. That is what you want in someone you have lunch with. The eccentricity also of these people drives me crazy. Yeah. Like, why is that stuff coming up? And then you have, there's another couple that you, that have kind of some Christian kitsch on their walls, but also... Everyone in this town are... had Christian kitsch. The first house I walked into, and I didn't eat a meal alone the whole time. I didn't pay for a meal. Everyone wanted me over and they were so nice to me and so open. But the first house I walked into, I was stunned because there were more crosses on the wall in their living room than I'd ever seen in any room in my life, including churches. There were 14 crosses in their living room. Wow. And then, and then Different shapes, like the one that's yeah. even on both sides. And oh, okay. Wow. The ones were, that are made of words that cross with the same letter in the middle. There were ones. Oh, that, yeah. Amazing Grace. You told yeah, me the A's a cross. One. Yeah, there were a couple of yeah. those. And then there was the uh, two people I met carved old Reader's Digest condensed books into crosses with a bandsaw and, and affixed like a plastic flower to them, which is a thing. Two people you met. Well, I thought it was crazy when I saw the second one. And then I was listening to a podcast about a guy who, who had gone through Christian conversion and now kind of stops it. And his, it, this is one of his hobbies. So this is like a thing in the Christian community. There's so okay, many Reader's Digest condensed books out there and they're so soft and easy to saw. They're soft and easy to saw through. Yeah. And who was the first person? Who was the Eli Whitney of this who just decided he could put, put a saw through a book? I would okay. read a and very long it. New York Times Magazine story on this. I would definitely, like, four-parter in the New Yorker for sure. <laughs> but actually, this is the book. In Defense of Elitism is a book about those crosses, in part. I mean, those they're crosses, right? It's also a book that yeah. can be carved with a bandsaw if people choose to, into any shape you want. <laughs> My copy looks pretty substantial for that, but um, but I'll give it a shot tonight, I promise. Thank you. So wait, so that's, I mean, that came up in the context of talking about eccentricity and just the the sort of stuff that we've learned about from Errol Morris movies, from, you know, when there was a big passion for finding little oddballs throughout the country. You saw, like, heard this in S-Town. I don't know if you listened to that I podcast. Did. I did. Yeah, right. And the obsession with tattoos or the obsession with um, with these crosses. And what is the relationship of those crafts? Maybe they're crafts, they're ha American handicrafts to populism 
And then what is that relation to Trump? Can you connect those dots for me? Wow. You mean from making like a quilt out of T-shirts all the way to Trump? Yes. Okay. I can yes. try. I've never do done it. this. Only you. Only you can do it. Oh, okay. boy. Let's see. Art. Okay. I, you know, my first job was working for Martha Stewart, so this shouldn't be so hard. So populism is uh, a belief that certain people count as members of the society and people, other people don't. So in other right. words, okay. that's how you can make a claim that Trump is the true leader of America, even if he lost a popular vote, because the people who live in cities aren't real Americans and the people who just became American citizens aren't real Americans. And you, you can kind of parse out who counts and who doesn't, which every society mm -hmm. does, right? Like not everyone gets to vote. Like if you're, whatever your rules are in a society is, is who counts as a, as a member, like under 18, didn't go to prison, woman, mm -hmm. own land, whatever it is. So, so they're parsing yeah, it in a, a good point. in a much okay. more local way. Populists always do. So they define who the real people are and everyone else is a danger to that real people who really understand America. Um, yeah. And, and, and they will tell, you know, when the people in Miami, Texas would think about living in Los Angeles, like I do, or New York, like I used to, they, they see dystopia and they see, mm -hmm. they see a bunch of people looking at their cell phones all day who don't know their neighbors, who walk by homeless people on the street without helping them mm -hmm. in a dirty place. And they don't go to church and they don't know each other. And all they care about is what they can get from each other monetarily. Hmm, okay. And they don't sit there and they don't craft and think about how they belong to a community and what they have in common and do these projects together and share them. And Trump is a person who they would not particularly, no one in Miami, Texas likes Trump as a person. They're not cultists in that they think he's a savior. Okay. What they see is someone there said, if you have a cockroach problem and the exterminator comes over and he's showing his butt crack and he's cursing, and he's a person you want out of your house as soon as you possibly can, but he gets rid of your cockroaches. Right. Then he's your guy. Look, if General Grant is drinking and smoking cigars and drunk half the time, but he's winning the Civil War, like find out what kind of whiskey he's drinking and send it to the battle lines. I'll have what he's having. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Okay, got it. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. That's a little bit the the King Cyrus model that, um, you know, he's a pagan, yes. but he's freeing the Jews. Or yes. He's coarse and awful. But I don't understand where the free the Jews or the cockroaches come in. Sometimes I don't I feel like I don't understand the end point of this. And I'll just add to that. We've had a lot of talk about Trumpism as a cult on this show. Yes. And Stephen Hassan's been on the show to talk, an ex-Mooney to talk about this. And one of the things that seems clear about cults is they start out believing in something, clear out the cockroaches, win the Civil War, but they end up just uh, reenacting their embattlement. Like the Branch Davidians believed something before they just believed the ATF was out to get them, Right. So, like, what is the thing that they're trying, those people you met with the porn toys and the crosses on their walls and the and the, the Reader's Digest uh, crafts trying to do in the world? What are the cockroaches they want to eliminate? What would it take for them to say, we did it? Oh, the restoration of the nation state, I guess, is the, the primary thing that all the populace and all the countries seem to be fighting what for. What does that look like, the restoration of the nation state? Here's the thing, like to you and I, like this is what I had to wrap my head around. It took me forever. It was like, good luck, populace. Like the world is moving on. You're not going to stop it. Like it's, right. we're becoming more global. Like we're becoming more tech oriented. You can't stop it. 
And then I look back at history. I'm like, oh, people have stopped things. Like we did have a dark mm. ages. You did have Pol yeah. Pot. Like you can stop yeah. things. It's not inexorable. Yeah. And they're trying to no, stop that's things. that's right. And, I, I, and it just stop. seems so ridiculous right. that they could accomplish it. But they really can. And they really have in certain places in the globe. Right? Like, yeah. And not just from the right. Like we keep talking about the right. But like Bernie's not crazy about systems. Bernie doesn't. Bernie wants to put a farmer on the Fed. Right? On, the, right. on the board of governors. And then we wouldn't eat for two different reasons if he did that. So it, in, yeah. you look at Venezuela, like they're, they, they don't believe in, in a globalist system on the left. Like there, there are these right. forces on both sides, which are a reaction to something that's happened in the last few decades. And I'm trying, yeah. I've been trying to put my finger on it. And the closest I can get is after reading that book, Sapiens, is that there's, yes. there's, we're, we're naturally built to be in groups of 150. If you tell a good enough myth, you can get people to cooperate in larger and larger groups, which is the great success of humanity. At some point- I love this book, by the way. It's so cool. But at some point, people like you and me bought into a global myth. Like when, when you think about where you can live in the world or where your friends are or like what move, like you can go see Parasite or you can listen to K-pop or you can know about a new restaurant that's opening in Paris and you have a kind of global idea of the world on some mm -hmm. level. And there's a mm -hmm. myth you're telling yourself about human rights, which is like when Bloomberg says you can't smoke anymore in bars in New York, quickly thereafter, you can't smoke in bars in even Paris, right? So there's this mm -hmm. same mm -hmm. with like gay marriage. Like there's this idea that we're all part of this, this society. A and there are a lot of people, especially in the rural parts of England, America, any country who don't buy into that global myth right. and find that global myth to be very upsetting. Like Swedes are not going to be Swedes anymore if you buy into that. And it's, it's not incorrect. Like I was in Paris last summer and I hadn't been there for a while. I'm like, oh, Paris, people here, I mean, they're good looking and fashionable, but not like they used to be. They kind of look like people in New York now. And even the restaurants, it's all becoming a little similar. We, we pick up on things in other countries pretty quickly and adopt them in our cities. But in the country, yes. they don't. This is actually very interesting because there is an earlier period. And here we're like, we're just going to become parodies of ourselves or I'm going to become a parody of myself. But there was an earlier period where I definitely thought that I, I wasn't Parisian. I didn't th I thought I knew that I was an American in Paris, but that they were sort of comprehensible, comprehensible by my education. You know, that I could sort of understand them and then I could branch out and maybe understand Bangkok and, you know, be both different. I mean, I guess that's where I'm going with irony, be both different and a little bit play the part and learn a little bit of the language. And, you know, that if I used my mind, I could sort of put together a skincare routine that looked like a Paris skincare routine. Right. But then, as you say, there was this time not at the Café de Flore. See, that's oh, why I'm being a parody with the hot myself. chocolate. I where I exactly where I saw they were using laminated menus. That's upsetting. And the waiters were being kind of nice. And I did have a sinking feeling that I didn't want these. I didn't want there to be a global elite where everyone kind of looked alike and everybody just stays at the Ritz in every city. You know, and it looks exactly the same. And the cars are the same, you know, when they just d stopped having the little cars. Yep. And just the look of the whole thing became more Robert Moses than Jane Jacobs. And that was really 
a little bit upsetting to me. And I don't know if that's close to the homogenizing that people fear of losing their identities. I wanted the French to have their identity. Yeah, I think it it came to America a little late, this idea of populism, because much of what the world is experiencing, we exported. I mean, yes, people are. Ah, yes. People are reacting to, um, you know, Syrians moving into their country for sure, because that's that's a really dramatic difference culturally. Whereas the Americanization is like a language thing and a money thing, but it's it's not that different from from a lot of uh, especially European countries. But people in Brazil, people everywhere, are just really the fight of populism is who is a real Brazilian and yeah. who, who is a real Pole. And it's not the gays. Like in, and it always is some other group. Sometimes it's the Jews. Like in, in Poland right now, it's the gays. Like there's some group who doesn't fit in who you're going to blame for these changes that you're uncomfortable with. And there's been mm-hmm. there's been massive changes. And if you live in cities like we do, the idea that gay marriage is new doesn't, even though it is, doesn't feel like a massive change. Trans people doesn't feel like a massive change. And unfortunately, the liberal party that we have in most countries is still operating on a communism, capitalism, X, Y axis. And that's not what this fight is about huh. at all. So we, we still have the Jeremy Corbyns who are making these arguments that are irrelevant. Trump doesn't care about like the, the populace like Trump. They're not really interested in in economics in that kind of way. Like he, yeah. would, he would spend tons on infrastructure. Like he he would have a bigger government. Like he would have a small government. It's it's not of his interest. You know, it's interesting because one of the presumptions of this conversation is that we find like that muscle flexing and the gilded decor and the sort of wolf pack power moves distasteful and and silly. But there does seem to be a longing on the left or among liberals or center left to see some brio. And some less less Lisa Simpson, more more Montgomery Burns in our side of things, too. And I'm going to cite this Nancy Pelosi moment of, you know, she's such this Bella Figura. You know, she just like cuts a figure. What's Bella Figura? Oh, it's Frank Bruni talks about this a lot. It's the Italian way of comporting yourself. So it's like how you're dressed. It's gestures like tearing up the speech. Oh, big, big big things uh, like yeah, okay. yeah, but but also that everything matters, how your cufflinks are, how you um, walk down the street, but it can tilt into, he looked at me the wrong way, you know, oh, kind of okay. Cosa Nostra stuff. Okay. But we do love this Nancy Pelosi thing, which is pretty art of war. I mean, it's pretty funny that we also like some of the Wolfpack moves if they're made by our team. I hate them. I feel so strongly about this. Do you? Ugh. Okay, tell me why. I th- This is what it really scares me. Because I feel like there is not a love for democracy right now. And there's not a love for civility. And if we are going to be the intellectual elite, even if we lose, that's fine. But what we can't do is become them or there's no hope. Like, yeah. you have to... Well, that's, what I, that's the Bernie thing. If Yes, it is. And if you're fighting yeah. to be the people who do their thinking with data and not with just force and you believe in ideas more than power and you believe in democracy more than autocracy like you can't yeah. you and, I, and nancy pelosi is so impressive to me i do not mean to pick on her at all but ripping up the speech was not the right move like um it, it just it's not who we want to be i believe in the michelle obama when they I mean, it's it's snobby, and when they and, go low, we go high. I, I, it sounds smug, and I know I don't like. I know that's 
the part of me that people hate and that's the part of the intellectual elite that people hate. So that part's not great. But the idea of when they go low, we go high is right. I was sitting next to someone at the last debate, which was in LA. Yeah. And it came up and she said, no, when they go low, we kick them in the balls. And right. I was like, yeah. And so I was like, no. And I started arguing with her. At, and then at which point I found out she was Maxine Waters' daughter. And I realized, oh, oh this is the exact person who said after Ted Cruz or someone was screamed out of a restaurant, she made that speech that like, if if you see them in a gas station, you see them in a supermarket, you you corner them and you don't let them go. And, and she made it yeah. seem like a mob rule, which is, it, it just scares me. So yes, I think yes. Michael Avenatti, who I think you enjoyed at some point, he scares me. Please, no, uh, sorry, must sorry. I pay penance for this you for the rest of my do. life? You kind of do, because he was at, I, I saw him at some vanity fair of like one of these summit conferences. Yeah. And he just oozed evil. I mean, he oozed power and control and money yeah. and shiny suits. All right. Tucker Carlson was right on that one. That's when I added Maserati ownership to Gulfstream ownership as the thing, you know, kind of like a red flag. Does he own a Maserati dealership? He has a Maserati and or he had. He's like in arrears on sure, everything now. Sure. He's everything's been seized. But yes, he actually the fact that he ran for president and and now has been sidelined in the big house is what le led Ben Wittes to say the office of the presidency might not be corrupted forever by Donald Trump, because if it were, we'd want the person that goes low and kicks him in the balls. And we clearly don't want Avenatti. At least we have that. He saw that as very heartening, right? I mean, I think I have a higher tolerance than you do for some of that show off stuff. I mean, that's the appeal of Pete Buttigieg. I mean, that's the appeal of Adam Schiff. Like that, He's my congressman. And oh. even though I think impeachment was a huge mistake, and I wrote about that in the Washington Post before it started. I think it was an, oh. it was an elitist trap that that we fell okay. into and, and it's good, it may have bad ramifications in this election. Uh. But I also listened to Adam Schiff and I was like, well, if we're going to do this, that's the way to do it. Like it's an appeal yeah. to our better selves. It's an appeal to democracy. It's appeal to the rule of systems and law. Like it, it was beautiful. Right. It was very Westway. It wasn't like a Scorsese mob speech. It was like an Oscar speech in one of those worthy films we used to see or Mr. Smith goes to Washington. The impeachment did lay out like you saw all those career civil servants who were so smart and knew so much yeah. and devoted so yeah. much of their lives to to not making a lot of money and not having a lot of power and, and doing right. this work. And it just laid out these two different options. So even though I didn't like mm. the impeachment hearings I, uh, strategically, I did think it was yeah. another opportunity for people to be presented with two different ideas of how America should be. I do, too. And I, I was so happy. I mean, I was pro impeachment because I feel like the truth is just more more beautiful and more lasting than the lies. And I wanted to see them in the record. What's the record? Like, I, I think we're past like the record. I think we're we're down to like saving democracy. Like, I don't I don't know if there's going to be a record. I think you brought up the Dark Ages before and that followed the fall of Rome. And I don't know if you read this book. It's a little bit on par with Sapiens as far as probably dubious in total accuracy, but How the Irish Saved Civilization. Do you remember it was a bestseller a little while ago? But anyway, no. it was about how the Irish preserved the record, how the monks in the Book of Kells preserved the record of antiquity of Latin and Greek culture and also Christianity from the Holy Roman Empire. And without it, we wouldn't have made it through the Dark Ages so the culture could flourish again. And that's why 
I think the record is important. That's why I think we need to remember what Mitt Romney said, that there is a kind of piety that drives some Americans and that has been extremely useful in getting Americans like Mitt Romney to pursue truth against their own short-term interests. And what Adam Schiff said, you know, sort of this beautiful cinematic rendering of what our civic responsibilities are was also lovely and quite emotional. I mean, there were lots of curly cues in what Adam Schiff said. It wasn't as though he he didn't cut a figure. You know, he wants to be a screenwriter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, there's a way that he can work himself up into tears that is just totally masterful. I mean, he's like choking back. It's very manly, very marathoner <laughs> way of, of crying. But I, I mean, man, I saw Ali Maystal saying, oh, Adam, do not start crying or I'm going to be sobbing here. Don't do it. You know, and I felt that way too, watching him. Oh, but anyway, so that's why I think the record's important and the re- and not a small not a small thing. And Mitt Romney saying I might just be a footnote. You know, he's he's got his eye he has his eye on history and this is how history has been written so far. It may in a coming dark ages not be written like this. It may happen in Trump style tweets, but it just will be nice to remember that people used to talk this way. Yeah, I mean that's that's my fear. If you look at like the presidency after Andrew Jackson and before Andrew Jackson, it doesn't really go back to the the, way, the dignity the founders had and the sense of honor. So, so I don't I I don't know how you turn things back, but but you, maybe you do somewhat. Like after Nixon, things seem to turn back a little bit. I don't know, but I do know that like it's important to understand the people who hate the elites and what their worldview is, and not just say they're stupid or brainwashed. They they are voting altruistically for an America that they believe is better. Um, and it's important to remember mm-hmm. that. And it's, and mm-hmm. it's also important to remember that the people who throw democracy away for autocracy, even if they believe it's better, th- it never works out. It always ends in Pol Pot or Stalin or Putin or like it, it's never it's never a better scenario. Since you brought up sapiens and a certain amount of uh, evolutionary biology, is populism adaptive? Because that's really the, to me, that's the only thing that matters. I mean, a look at Venezuela and even Puerto Rico after the hurricane, I mean, the thing that can drive me to Adam Schiff-style tears is the account of how belts have had to get smaller and smaller notches on them, I mean, closer and closer, smaller waists, because people are just starving to death yeah. in Venezuela while their leader eats steak in front of them. And the, I think they were up to, at some point, at losing on average seven pounds a month. And, you know, these things ground out. Like, you're, the countries go bankrupt. The people die. But there is, there is a balance. Like, yes, if you, if you go full socialist tilt, that often is, is where you can go to full. But there's these other countries we can look at where like if you went to Hungary, you went to Poland, yep. you go to Russia, we could live a life there like on a day to day level. It's not Nazi Germany. It's not Venezuela. It's not Cambodia during Pol Pot. It basically functions almost like a democracy. You know, it's not really yeah. a free press, but like that's a model that I think could last for be a very horrible thing for a lot of people, um, but last for a very long time. So, Ugh. so, so those are the things yeah. that I'm. I'm afraid of. And I think one thing, and I don't know how to do it. That's why I'm just a reporter and not a politician or a thinker. But I think in that sapien way, someone needs to tell a big global myth 
that everyone can get behind, including people who don't live in cities, including people who are very religious. Someone needs to tell that story and bring everyone in, because if we keep fighting, given the way that the systems are built, we might lose. Joel Stein is the author of In Defense of Elitism, Why I'm Better Than You and You Are Better Than Someone Who Didn't Buy This Book. Thanks for being here, Joel. Thank you for having me. So that's it for today's show. What do you think? I hang out in a very non-elitist place. That's Twitter. I'm at page 88. This show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus, where you really can join the elite and become a Slate Plus member. Membership has its advantages. You'll get all Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for that first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Chow Tu. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.